Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. As most of you know, um, for a good few years, um, the chief gardener here at the Manse hasn't been myself, but has been Colin, my older son. He really took it on board a good number of years ago. He loves gardening. I know he helped a number of people within the church and in the wider community doing their gardens. And now he's launched himself into creating a new garden down in his house in Skirling outside of Bigger. But his departure um, had a big impact on a number of a number of ways in the house, but particularly on me and the garden. This year I was going to be landed and I am landed with having to, to look after it myself. And I have to say that thought daunted me. Uh, I was seriously thinking of having to employ a gardener because it is quite a large space. However, good comes out of bad. And the lockdown and all that's happened over these past weeks has meant that I have had time, indeed I've made time, to go out into the garden most days, at least just for an hour or so, to get on with trying to get things under control. And I would like to think I have. I've done the weeding, I've scarified the grass, I've taken away a, a border, or rearranged a border, taken away a path. I'm now in the process of trimming our conifers that we have in the garden. We have six, five at the front, one at the back, three are down, three are trimmed, ready for action, another three, well, working them over the next week or two. So good has come out of bad. The lockdown has meant that I've had the time to go and to do that, to attend to that, and I feel quite good about it. And if you can see well with the camera, I've even got a bit of a sunshine in my face because of it. Good coming out of not so good. That, of course, is our hope with all that's happened over these past weeks and the last few months, that despite the real tragedy of the loss of so many people through the COVID-19, despite the upheaval within our society, good will come out of it. And we made reference last Sunday to some of the differences that people are sensing, our new sense of community, people helping each other, having an eye open for their neighbour, um, a whole host of ways good can come out of bad. That shouldn't surprise us. It's Paul writing to the church in Rome that says that all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Notice what Paul says, not that all things are good, but that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what is that good? Well, surely that good for Paul and indeed for for all the followers of Jesus is that we increasingly are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, who didn't, as I made reference to last week, didn't um, play safely. It wasn't safe for him to go to Jerusalem in many ways, and yet he did so because no other was good enough to save us and to pay the price of sin. Jesus was willing to journey to Jerusalem. Jesus was willing to undertake all that he did for our good, for our spiritual good. Of course, for many believers in our world, being a follower of Jesus isn't good in the sense it leads to their physical or material well-being. Over many years, myself and Elizabeth have supported the wider church and, and particularly have a commitment to, the, to what's known as the suffering church. And in the magazines that we get here at the Manse, whether it be the magazine from Interserve, the Go magazine, the challenges facing mission agencies in 2020, or whether it be from Open Doors, and when two or three are gathered in North Korea, or the magazine of Release International Voice, 
release Raymond, sign a petition to free up Dr. Malaysian pastor, or from the Barnabas Fund, Saving God's People in Crisis. All of these magazines testify to how God's people in far from good situations, far from safe situations, far from nice situations, are nonetheless knowing what it is to identify with Jesus and knowing his grace and mercy breaking into their lives. Indeed, ironically, bad things often lead to the good of Christians, in that they grow closer to God, more dependent upon him, and reveal more and more his grace and mercy in their lives. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, and you really will need to read the whole letter if you're going to get the sense of what Paul's saying, but Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, the second Corinthians, writes this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers." Paul's writing to a church that in many ways seemed to be very much alive, but actually had very serious and dangerous problems. And Paul himself had often been criticised by many within the church. They pointed to his obvious weaknesses. It would appear that perhaps at times he had a stammer. It would appear that perhaps he wasn't very impressive in terms of his physical stature. It would appear that he took a particular understanding of the faith, which even at this early stage of the life of the church, others were disagreeing with. Whatever the reasons, Paul had had a difficult time, although God had used him to found the church in Corinth and he had committed himself to that fellowship over many years, he found it challenging, especially when it came to dealing with some of the very grievous sins that were occurring within the life of the church. And Paul here indicates that not only was Corinth a problem, he himself had gone through many trials. Indeed, later on in 2 Corinthians, he makes reference to the severe trials. In 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks about how he had been shipwrecked, how he had been held up by bandits, um, how he had been beaten and whipped, and, and a whole host of things had happened to him. And all of that had happened in his ministry as an apostle and servant of Jesus Christ. He says, I have laboured and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Here were things which weren't good in a human, material, physical sense. Here were things that certainly weren't nice. Here were things that weren't safe, and yet Paul had gone through all of these things, and in those verses I read from the beginning of the letter, he says he, they even received the sentence of death. But, he says, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. These bad things produced the good in Paul's life of increasing his faith and confidence in the God of the resurrection. That theme we picked up and looked upon last Sunday and indeed on Easter Sunday, the God who enters into the dark valley of Calvary, but the God who also is glorified in the brilliance of Easter Sunday in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. These truths at the centre of our faith have to be the centre of our life of faith. 
They have to be the center of our experience of faith. They have to be the center of how we express our faith. And God uses bad things in order to teach us the good of what it means to rely upon the God who ultimately raises the dead. I hope and pray that that's your experience during these times of trial. It's very easy for us to fall into a spiritual self-indulgence. Very easy for us to rely upon what someone else might say or someone else might offer to us as comfort. All of that is good, but ultimately we ourselves, each one of us, has to give an account to God for how we respond to him. And each one of us must find our hope and our confidence in the God who raises the dead, who brings glory and goodness in our lives and in the life of the church and for our world out of sometimes very bad and trying things. And I know some of us who have been through times of bereavement and stress in our own lives in the past can testify to that. And Paul indeed goes on to speak about that. Earlier on in those verses from First, Second Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Verses 3 to 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Read it for yourself when you have time. Paul's here speaking about how his experience of trials and tribulations had caused him to know more of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, the God who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive. We help others, we minister to others the comfort of God as we ourselves have received that, as we ourselves have gone through the trials of faith and the tribulations of life. It's born out of our own personal journey with God. God teaches us good things of what it is to rely upon him, to trust him, to know his grace, to receive his forgiveness, to know that in our weaknesses his strength is made perfect. God uses all of that, not just for our spiritual good personally, but so that we might be a blessing and help to others. As I said earlier, it's easy for us to enter into spiritual self-indulgence. I know Mr. White, my predecessor, used to get exasperated about what he called spiritual navel-gazing. We look into ourselves. We're concerned about how we feel, about what's happening to us, and about what we need to get through the present circumstances, rather than having a God-centered and other-centered focus on our lives. And because we look to ourselves we often find that we look into a very barren and empty hole. But as we look to God, and as we ask God for, to help us to be a blessing to others, so we find that in these challenges, his comfort, his peace, his help is found. We're caused, the trials of life cause us to rely on God more. The trials of life teach us lessons that enable us to help others. We comfort others with the comfort we've received, all of that is born out of suffering. 
There's a very strong trait within Western Christianity, within Western evangelical Christianity, that avoids any thought of suffering. As we said last Sunday, the concept of death, even within the church, is so often airbrushed out of the, the life of faith. And certainly the idea of suffering is often something that we see we have to avoid. Our brothers and sisters in Christ and the world church, the testimony of the church down through the ages, the example of the prophets and the apostles, and supremely the story of Jesus tells us that we can only really know the grace of God, the compassion of God, and the mercy of God as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, the way of self-denial, the way of saying, not my will, but yours be done, and that causes and will lead to suffering. Being true to Jesus as we enter into the 2020s, could well be increasingly a costly thing. To be standing out from the crowd, not to play safe, not just to be nice, will increasingly cause a challenge to the church and to those who would be true to Jesus. But that is God's way of bringing spiritual good that we might increasingly be like the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. But that means, all of that leads, as we close, to a confidence. Later on, we don't have time to spend developing all, but later on he talks about, in chapter, later on chapter 1, about how God has made them stand firm. Verse 21 of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He goes on to say that um, he wants to share with the church. He doesn't want to lord over them, but he wants to share in the church. He wants to work with them for their joy, for their good. And he says at the very end of that chapter, because it, it is by faith that you stand firm. What's he say? Well, he's saying here, as he says elsewhere, that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He wants to bear the testament to the fact that he, having done all, he can stand. Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. All of that is meant to enable us as Christians to be firm in the faith, to be confident in our faith, to be mature in the faith, to be emotionally stable in the faith. I remember a few years ago taking a couple of young fellows, the, the sons of a, of, a, of a woman who came to the church for a period, um, back into Glasgow from, from, from the house where they lived here in Uddingston. And we passed by the church and they asked, obviously, that's part church. And one of them understandably so expressed some concern because the church seemed to be, well, somewhat lifted up from the pavement. Those walls, that railings could be seen as a barricade. And he remarked, he and his, his brother went to one of these far more younger, in many ways user-friendly, many ways livelier churches within Glasgow, that his church was open to people. They didn't have any barricades or anything that might prevent people from coming to them. And he made a valid point. I'm sure in some ways those, that wall and those railings and that door and the building and everything can appear sometimes as a bit of a barricade, a bit of a fortress. But I'd like to see it as actually the opposite. A building like this in our community speaks of something that's steadfast, that's built upon a rock, that is solid, that stands the test of time, that is above the realities of the world in a sense, because after all, the God that we worship is above the realities of the world. He enters in but he enters in so that we can be transformed and so that in the power of the resurrection we can be lifted up so that we can stand firm and not be tossed about by every wind and wave. 
Sadly, those two young men don't go to any church now. They've been tossed about by the wind and waves, and at least for a season they're laid aside. We're called to be those who stand firm, Paul says. The seal of ownership is on us. The Spirit of God is within us, guaranteeing what is to come. And it's God who makes both us and all of God's people stand firm in Christ. That's the good that God wants to cause through these times of trial. He wants to mature us. He wants to deepen our faith. He wants to reveal within us that authority that comes from God. Indeed, at the very end of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul speaks about that godly authority which gives them a certain degree of strength and force. He says, I'll read these verses to you. Um, he says, be clear. He says, Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, and yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Yes, in our weaknesses, God's strength is made perfect. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Having done all, we are to stand. We are to stand firm. That's what God's good is for you and me in these present days. Not to be blown aside. Not to be spiritually self-indulgent. Not to be inward-looking. Not to be filled with fear. But to be confident. To have that authority of God so that we can see things with the mind of Christ, as we said last Sunday, so that we can read the signs of the times, so that we can bring a word into our communities, into the lives of our families. Not boasting of ourselves, but pointing to the God of all comfort, the source of all hope, testifying to others of how God's grace has helped us as we've journeyed through times of trial in our life, comforting others with the comfort we have received. That's the good that God wants to do within our lives. And this coming week, in the prayer guide, I don't know whether you're using it, certainly in some of the fellowship groups we've been encouraged to do that, and the theme for this week, written by Graeme Gardner, who's the session clerk at Knightswood Church, is, what is God doing in our lives? He wrote that last year. Little did he know he was writing for a week. Now, in 2020, when he was writing in 2019, little did he know he was writing for a week in 2020, when that is a very good question. What is God doing in our lives? He's wanting to change us. He's wanting to make us more and more like his son. He's wanting to powerfully transform us by the power of the resurrection and with the work of the Holy Spirit, not into feeble, shaky, emotionally troubled people, but people who are transformed, who are renewed, who can speak a word from the Lord and who can stand firm in the ebb and flow of our present days. That is the good that God wants to bring out of these times of trial. All things do work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Lord, we have to confess that so often we are self-indulgent in our faith. It's all about me. It's all about how I'm feeling. It's all about how I'm going to cope. And we have to say sorry for that. We have to confess that that is the spirit of the world living and eating into the soul of those who are the people of God. 
We thank you that you're the God who holds all history in your hands. We thank you that you're the God who's sovereign over the affairs, not only of the nations, but of our lives. You're the God, yes, who has entered into the realities of our world, but you're also the God who raised again from the grave your Son, Jesus Christ, who is now at your right hand, exalted and high, and who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Help us, lift us up. Set our feet upon the rock. Let the picture of our church, Lord, be a picture of what you call us to be, the church of God, not made of bricks and stone, but made of men and women, filled with weakness, sinners needing your grace, but transformed and renewed to be that people of God who stand confident in mind and in body and in spirit. We long to reveal that to our community so that we might comfort others with the comfort we receive. Teach us, Lord, that through the road of suffering, you have many you things to make us aware of and to cause us to ponder. Help us, like Paul, to rely upon you, the God who raises from the dead, to know that anointing of your spirit so that we might stand firm. And so continue to do that work, not only within our own lives, within our own little fellowship, but within our church and our land in these days, as we thank you for the example of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the suffering church, who, going through times that are far from nice, in places that are far from safe, so often reveal that authority, that confidence, that godliness, that by your grace you have created within their lives. May their example, O Lord, stir our hearts and cause us to pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.